this morning. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the, Lord of the, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your husband, your maker, is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In an overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills may be moved, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed says the Lord who has compassion on you. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate and your gates of carbuncles and all your wall of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established, you shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall confute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you now for this time. Thank you for these few moments in which we turn and give our attention to your word. Uh, Lord, as we've gathered this morning, we uh, want to pray particularly for the Sass family. Thank you for the way in which uh, Ben serves, and we pray that you would uh, continue to watch over he, Melissa, and their children as they serve in this very chaotic and crazy and, quite honestly, uh, absolutely insane time in the midst of what uh, apparently is a, a quite readily a broken sort of institution. Uh, Father, may he continue to be a source of light and truth, and we pray that you would uh, watch and guard uh, his heart and mind, as well as for Melissa and the kids.
Father, bless these few moments now, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've been making our way through the servant songs of Isaiah, we've seen a pattern that Isaiah uses in each of the four portraits of the coming Messiah. God the Father gives his people commentary through the prophet Isaiah that helps us to explain and understand each of the four servant songs. Well, in this fourth and final servant song that we looked at last week, we see God's commentary this morning, and we understand that it's equal parts invitation and proclamation. God is both proclaiming what the servant's work has brought about, and he's inviting us to respond appropriately. So he's proclaiming what the work of the servant has done, and he's inviting us to respond appropriately. Isaiah 54 tells us exactly what the servant has accomplished. It is the summation of all the redemptive work of the triune God. Or as Paul explains in 1 Corinthians, this is where all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus. We could think of it this way. If Isaiah 53 is true, and we know that it is, then Isaiah 54 gives us the results of the grand and glorious work of the suffering servant. Now, not surprisingly, there are powerful images used to communicate the work of the servant. God does not just give us a checklist. No, he paints us a picture. And all three of the images are quite basic. Home, marriage, and a city to live in. But it's their fundamental character that makes them so vital and powerful. The combined effect of these three images, then, is our big idea for this morning. And if you look in your bulletin, or if you look at the screen in front of you, you'll see it. Our big idea for Isaiah 54 is this. The work of the servant joins the promises of God to the people of God. The work of the servant joins the promises of God to the people of God. As we looked at Isaiah 53 last week, we saw that there were folks, oh, particularly over the last 150 to 100 years, who have really tried to push back against uh, what we're learning and what we're told about Jesus' work in Isaiah 53. And one of the critiques that uh, folks have of Isaiah 53 and of a particular understanding of it, which we know as penal substitution, in other words, there's a penalty that was paid, a penalty for sin, and Jesus serves as our substitute. Well, in critiquing that, there are people who will say, now wait a minute, but it, it takes the work of Jesus and it, it makes it cold. It makes it sort of mechanistic. It's almost as though uh, God is just kind of out for blood, and then once that's satisfied, everything's cool. Well, Isaiah 54 uses these very warm and very powerful and very basic images to remind us that what's happening in Isaiah 53 isn't a mere mechanism, though it is a mechanism, 
But rather, Isaiah 53 is about a series of fundamental relationships that are now restored. There's a love that was lost that has been reclaimed. Three things then we want to see in Isaiah 54 this morning, which are the three images that Isaiah uses. First, we are invited to sing in an enlarged tent. We are invited to sing in an enlarged tent. Verse 1 begins this way. Sing, O barren one. Break forth into singing. Cry aloud. Why? Why is a woman who has never experienced childbirth, why is she to sing? Well, she's called upon to sing because her childlessness has been removed. The woman who was once barren is now bearing not merely a child, but bearing children. Now, that seems like a bit of a strange image for Isaiah to begin with. Uh, we need to stop for just a second and understand that in the ancient world, questions of fruitfulness or questions of reproduction, be they crops or herds or children, those questions were thought to be theological, not technological. So if you were a woman who had not yet born children, if you were experiencing childlessness, it would have been understood as being a reproach from whatever deity you worshipped. Now, we look at those kinds of questions and we go, well, there are, there are two constituent parties that have to come together and there can be all sorts of things medically, and so there are ways in which we can address that. Well, in the ancient world, uh, they, they didn't understand any of that to work in that way. Instead, they understood, hey, fundamentally, there's some sort of issue between you and the god or goddess that you worship. If you were struggling then with infertility in the ancient world, you would not go to see a doctor. You would go to see your priest or your priestess. You would offer prayers. You would offer sacrifices. Because it was understood that childlessness was a result of some kind of judgment of whatever deity you worshipped. In Isaiah 54, we're being told that all of our transgressions all of our iniquities have been paid for. The woman who was experiencing the judgment of God, and please understand, this is a metaphor, so don't, don't bang on it too hard. That those who are experiencing in painful, intangible ways the judgment of God, that judgment has been removed. And so that thing that you felt like was the reminder to everyone in the community that your relationship with God or the gods was not as it ought to be, and you were under their curse, you were under their judgment, that's been removed. And friends, the promise here is not just for a child, but for so many children that you will need to enlarge your tent. In fact, you're going to have so many kids that they will take over cities that have been deserted and been destroyed because the enemy has come and laid waste to them. There is an invitation then in this text. Sing. Enlarge your tent. 
And there is a promise. The promise is this. Because God's servant has taken away your transgression and he's taken away your reproach, you will have so many children that you're going to need to ship them off. There won't be room for them, even when you expand your tent. Now, we said before that in the big idea that this is where the promises of God are joined to the people of God. Do you remember the promise that God made to Abraham? He told him that he would be his God and that his descendants, his offspring, would be as numerous as the sands of the seashore. How does that happen? It happens because of the work of the servant. The suffering servant means that the promises of God and the people of God are now joined together. In fact, in this instance, it means that the promises of God are the people of God. Um, stop for just a second. Uh, look around you. Look particularly at the people. What do you see? I know if you're looking at me, you're seeing something who's really, really ridiculously good looking. I get that. You can either laugh or be overwhelmed. We'll go with laughing. That's fine. But what you're actually looking at are individuals who are tangible proof of God's covenant faithfulness. The people of God, that's the promise. What's happening? What's happening is God is creating for himself a people. And that creation of his people is possible only because of the one who bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Friends, what you are looking at when you look around this morning and you see the visible church is proof that God is keeping his word He's keeping his covenant promises to Abraham and through the finished and completed work of the suffering servant. The people of God and the promises of God are joined together. It's interesting, I find, because there are times in which, uh, as you listen to different people, uh, they'll say, well, you know, uh, if you really want to grow your church, I'm mindful of this because we, uh, we talked at length yesterday, as Matt has said, as a session, uh, just about why we do what we do and how we do it and can we do it better and if we do, what do we think the end goal ought to be? And one of the things that I find interesting as you think about those kinds of conversations is there are people who say, well, what your church really needs to do is you need to make the gospel relevant. Now, let's be clear, that's better than thinking of the gospel as being irrelevant. But what Isaiah is telling us this morning is that if we approach it and go, oh, we need to make the gospel relevant, what that really means is that we don't understand beans about the gospel. See, what Isaiah is saying here is that it's not that we need to make the gospel relevant, namely, it's that the work of Jesus is understood as being central to God's work of transforming the world in order to fit the gospel. We don't need to take the gospel and sort of rework it so it fits the world. No, God through Jesus and through his people is taking the world and he's remaking it to fit the gospel. 
So don't start with, oh, it's got to look like the world. No, if it's got to look like the world, it's a fat mess. No, God is through Christ and through his people, through the gospel. He's taking the world and he's making it look like the gospel. I pray you find comfort in that. That in the midst of people storming the Capitol, and in the midst of accusations of stealing elections, and the talk of coming revolutions, that you will let the easy and peaceful yoke of the triune God rest upon you. Friends, our Creator God, who is sovereign, is as we speak, through his Son, through his Spirit, through his people, he is transforming the world to fit his gospel. Go to bed with that on your mind. Turn off whatever nonsense is screaming at you. And instead, hear the still, small voice. The sovereign creator, through his son, through his spirit, through his word, through his people, is transforming this world to fit his gospel. Secondly, we can find security in a restored marriage. We can find security in a restored marriage. It's interesting how these images all fit together. Uh, if you've ever been a single parent, you know that a single parent having a whole entire house full of children does not sound like a blessing. It sounds like a prison sentence. And so to go along with this promise of children is the promise of not just marital bliss, but in a marriage that's, been, that's gone sideways but is now restored. And so the second image that he uses builds off the first, and it's also quite moving and powerful. Beginning in verse 4, we're introduced to a young woman. We're introduced to a young woman who is afraid. She was once married, happily so. But her actions, and in fact Isaiah spent 50 chapters reminding us, that the error in the relationship was not on God's part, but the infidelity and the sin and the ways in which the marriage was trampled on belonged to Israel and not to God. It's her actions who brought about fear, shame, disgrace, and reproach. Because her husband is holy, he did what his holiness demanded he do. He cast her off. She felt the anger, the righteous anger, of her infidelity. Now, we've heard the language of verse 4 before. That language of fear, shame, reproach, or guilt 
We've heard it back at the very beginning of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, when God confronts our first parents, after they decide that God cannot be trusted, therefore God does not need to be obeyed, the response to their rebellion consisted of fear, shame, and guilt, or as Isaiah says, reproach. And so we need to come to Isaiah 54. And as we think about this marriage between Zion and God, or between Israel and God, we need to understand that these are not just Israel and God marriage issues. No, Isaiah is subtly reminding us that these are human being issues. What's true of the relationship that's spoken of in Isaiah chapter 54 verses 4 to 10 is not just for Israel. It's for every son of Adam and every daughter of Eve who has lived and is living and ever will live. Look then at the language of verse 10. If you want to understand how complete and how total and how all pervasive this restoration is, let's read together verse 10. For the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Friends, here's the promise. Hey, the world can come to an end, but you know what? My covenant faithfulness to you will not. My steadfast love will not. My covenant of peace, my compassion, they will still be there. The eternal God, who cannot lie, is standing before his bride in a covenant ceremony and he's making these beautiful promises to us, to the church. That is the kind of restoration, that is the kind of marriage that Isaiah is speaking of. I hope as we kind of lean on this a little bit and lean on this image. This is one we do want to press in on just a bit. I hope it helps us understand why the band on your finger, if you're married, is such a big deal. See, the Apostle Paul takes this image that Isaiah uses in chapter 54 and he applies it to the relationship between a husband and a wife. And Paul tells us that every marriage between a man and a woman is a picture of the relationship between Jesus and the church. Now, let's stop for just a minute and think about the words that Isaiah uses to describe that relationship. He uses the words love, peace, and compassion. So let me ask you a question. We're going to go from preaching to meddling now in a hurry. Here it is. Does your marriage paint a similar 
picture. Does your marriage paint a similar picture? Now, I want to be clear. This is about the work of the servant. This is not about you having to try harder, go get into therapy, or anything else. This is what Isaiah is telling us. Isaiah is holding out, out to us the reality that your marriage can paint a picture of love and peace and compassion. In fact, the one who created marriage created it with the intention that your life with your spouse would bear testimony to a watching world about love and peace and compassion. So if it doesn't, it means that what we are saying about Jesus in the church is untrue. God created our marriages to be a faithful, though not perfect, picture of God's faithfulness and his fidelity and his love and his compassion and the peace that is possible in that relationship with his bride. So if you don't have that, I want you to understand this. That's not what God intended. It's not. But what God promises, and what God designed, and what God baked into, if you would, the marriage covenant is that it would proclaim to a watching world the truth about Jesus in the church. Your marriage might not be a faithful picture of love and peace and compassion, but friends, it can be. It can be. Thirdly, we want to find safety and shelter in a restored city. We want to find safety and shelter in a restored city. See, there's, there's one last thing that this remarried, reunited, restored couple with a gazillion children need in order to prosper and uh, to thrive. They need a city in which to live. They need a place. It's one thing for the husband and wife to think with all of their children they can just take on the world. But they do need a place. They need a community. They need a city. Now, we need to remember that Isaiah's original audience, the folks who would have read this uh, the very first time, had lived through the Assyrian siege of Jerusalem that we read about in Isaiah chapter 36 and 37. Furthermore, they were reading this knowing that the Babylonians were going to come and carry their descendants into captivity. So Isaiah is telling them, hey, listen, you're going to be restored, but you need a city that's safe to live in. And they're going, yes, yes, absolutely we do. We just lived through the Assyrians, and we know the Babylonians are coming. This idea of a secure and safe and peaceful city sounds great. And God is now saying to his people in this third image, as your groom... I'm giving my bride a place of safety. I'm giving my bride a place of shelter. Now, it's important, 
as we read that beautiful image that begins in verse 11, as he speaks to those who are afflicted, storm-tossed, and not comforted, and he, as he tells them of the security and the worth and the unspeakable beauty of this city, it's important that we understand when our New Testament passage for this morning that Meredith read for us, it's important that we understand when that's going to take place. It's at the end. It's at the end. In other words, the kind of safety, the kind of security, the kind of shelter that we need and we long for in, other, in, in order for this restored marriage relationship to really thrive, it's not going to happen in this life, but it will happen in the life that is to come. Look at what uh, Isaiah says in verse 17. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me. It's not yet. It's not yet. But it is coming. The kind of knowledge that God has promised. Well, we get a foretaste of it here. For Paul tells us that because of the Holy Spirit indwelling us, we have the mind of Christ. But the kind of knowledge that's promised in Isaiah chapter 54, that all of our children, verse 13, shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children, well, that won't happen here yet either. We're waiting for it. It's coming, but in the life that is to come. And the promise of righteous judgment. Now remember, these are people who just had the Assyrians roll through their land and they know the Babylonians are coming. And so when they read verses 16 in the first half of verse 17, they'd be like, yes! Come on in! Babylonians, come on down! Because look, the Lord has created a smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. He's created the ravager to destroy, and no weapon that's fashioned against us is going to succeed. So come on down. Well, we don't get that until the second advent of the Lord Jesus, which is promised for us in Revelation chapter 19. Friends, the kind of city and the kind of security and the kind of safety and shelter that is promised here is not here and now. It will be, but it's not. We will never have this kind of safety and security and shelter on this earth. So the next time a politician promises us that kind of nonsense, can we please stop? Can we please understand that the safety and shelter and security and beauty that is promised here is for God's kingdom at the end and not for this kingdom here and now? Can we also understand then that because this world is not our forever home, we do need to grapple with the fact that parts of this world are hostile to the marriage relationship we find ourselves in, not just between human husband and wife, 
but between the triune God and his bride, the church. I think it's easy to look around us and see how inhospitable and hostile our culture is to marriage. So why do we think it would be any different with our marriage to the Lord Jesus? Luther wrote, he used to speak all the time, that we have three great adversaries, sin, the world, and the devil. And I think sometimes we find ourselves getting way too comfortable and expecting that these glorious and gracious promises of God to provide for his restored bride, I think sometimes we think they're going to happen here. And we think somehow that the political process or the sheer charisma of an elected official, that somehow that's going to make all that happen. No, friends, uh, Isaiah 53 is the only thing that will make that happen. As we come to the table this morning, we're reminded of the servant's work on our behalf, that he was crushed that he was put to grief, that his bones were broken, his blood was poured out, and that he was numbered with the transgressors. The table also points us to the fundamental nature of our relationship with Jesus. Jesus is not your life coach. Jesus is not the means by which you will get your best life now. Jesus, fundamentally, is our husband, and we are his bride. Guys, I know that's really weird to try to consider. I get it. But that's the image that the Bible paints for us. And so as we come to the table this morning, our husband is giving us a foretaste of the wedding feast that is yet to come. This is not the final thing. This is a stop at McDonald's, as it were. This is but a glimmer, a glimpse that reminds us of our faithful husband and his covenant love and fidelity to us, his bride. It reminds us that it's only through his work that the promises of God and the people of God are restored and brought together. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word, which both proclaims and invites. Thank you for the skill with which you blessed and inspired your servant Isaiah. He could have just said, here's the checklist of what the servant has done. But he doesn't. No, instead, we are invited into these three images. We are invited into this story. We are invited to rethink and reimagine our relationship uh, with you, our relationship with others, and sometimes even more importantly, we're invited to rethink our relationship with ourselves. And we bless you for that this morning. We bless you that the shame 
and the guilt and the fear that are our heritage from our first parents have been replaced with the safety and love and peace and security that our husband gives to us. We pray these things now in his name. Amen.